We're gonna read a Christmas story called A Beautiful Mess. Sometimes life can be a big mess. It's like making a sugar cookie. It's all a process. It's hard to bring everything together without some splatters. It's in these messes we figure out what matters. Sometimes we spill the milk and forget the sugar. Sometimes we get mad and argue with each other. Sometimes we get a little crazy with the flour. Sometimes we accidentally leave the cookies in for an hour. Sometimes we have to try again. It's good to remember in life's messes, we have a friend. His name is Jesus and he's with us until the end. As you'll soon see, this is not a recipe to make a sugar cookie. It's the story of how baby Jesus came to be. It's a journey that will make you think about life's messes quite differently. Did you know the king of the universe was born like you and me? You may not know it yet, but his arrival was kind of messy. Mary and Joseph were on a road trip by foot. In the donkey's case, if there was one, he traveled by hoof. They were on their way to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, the same birthplace as King David, who once wore the crown. Mary carried in her belly a miracle child. Though pregnancy was uncomfortable, she continued to smile. She rejoiced at the blessing to come, a bundle of joy being God's own son. It's unclear whether they traveled by day or by night, but together they must have been quite a sight. Exhausted from walking the dusty trails, longing to wash the dirt from beneath their fingernails, their sandals slipping on their sweaty feet, their stomachs aching for something good to eat. It is possible they camped along the way, Imagine having stinky breath and messy hair all day. And don't forget about the bugs and flies. Up your nose and your mouth and buzzing around the donkey's eyes. Eventually, Mary and Joseph reached their destination. However, their journey would not end in blissful relaxation. The town was overcrowded and full of people. There was no lodging or guest room available. On top of that, Mary showed signs that the baby was due. Her breathing increased and her labor pains grew. Where would this wondrous birth take place? For the Son of the Most High, would there be enough space? There was one room available that was easily overlooked. It was a compartment for animals that was rarely booked. It wasn't an ideal space for a precious baby to be delivered, but there wasn't much time for another place to be considered. Upon entry, the smell would be quite strong. It definitely wouldn't be a place you'd want to stay very long. Imagine the animals staring with their big round eyes. Would they be startled by the baby's cries? It was in that stinky and undesirable place that Mary met Jesus face to face. He was her firstborn son. Through him, many miracles would be done. 
Leading up to that point was quite a trial, but there was nothing greater than the Savior's arrival. He was an infant so tender and sweet, the Messiah who would one day wash his disciples' feet. There was no crib to lay his precious head, so a slobbery feeding trough became his royal bed. Eventually, baby Jesus grew into a man. He entered a messy world and fulfilled his father's plan. This is a reminder today that Jesus is not afraid to enter our mess. He is present with us, whether we're at our worst or our best. He knows what it's like when life seems untidy. After all, he is the Lord God Almighty. The end. So now we have some packages to hand out to you. Shauna and Mary will hand them out, and then you can go back to your parents. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Merry Christmas, everybody. If you're a regular attender here, I should tell you that this is what's known in America as a tie. It's tie. And these are what's called shoes, all right? So uh, I own one of these. And uh, Christmas, Easter, and funerals. That's, that's, I never got the point of them. I mean, it's just having a noose around your neck. I, I, I never understood them, but I guess it's proper attire. And it is Christmas, so why not dress up, right? It's good to see you all here uh, this evening as we're celebrating Christmas. Um, that story was a perfect setup for what I want to be talking about. In fact, I'm kind of just going to do the adult version of that, but adult in such a way that it won't be adult. So kids, you know, I'm aware of the audience, so this is rated G. I think. I, I, I want us to reflect on, on two passages of Scripture as we're getting started. By the way, if you're visiting here, my name is Greg, and uh, I'm a teaching pastor here, and it's really good to see you. Uh, the first is from Galatians 4, an interesting passage where Paul says this, when the right time came, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. They say that in life, uh, timing is, is everything, and um, I think uh, if anyone's got timing down, it's God. When the right time came, when he saw it was the right time, Jesus came. And I, I want to ask this question, what made this the right time? Uh, what was it about this particular season that, that says, okay, this is the right time for the sun to come forth? Just to be thinking about that. And we get a little clue, a little window into that right time. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, a passage I touched on yesterday, uh, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He says, in those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. It says all the world because from the Roman perspective, Rome was the world and the world was Rome and no one else is worth considering. Um, and they're getting registered because uh, Augustus Caesar wants to um, uh, have a better way of taxing them, making sure that no one is falling through the cracks. It's a very cumbersome way of, of registering. If you ask me, you've got to go back to your hometown and all that stuff causes mayhem. But they didn't care what kind of trouble they call the peasants. These aristocrats just did what they wanted to do. So this was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was a descendant from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, which was a feeding trough, because there was no place for them 
in the end. Luke uses such sparing language. Uh, he's, he's really prone to an understatement. And he just, just kind of just, as a historian, just sort of lays this out there. But it leaves a lot of room for us to use our imagination and fill in the gaps. But sometimes I think we use our imagination to fill in the gaps in the wrong way. We've got centuries of tradition here with manger scenes and all those sorts of things. And so we tend to see this, this uh, story as, as a kind of a cute and quaint, feel-good, warm, fuzzy story. I'd like to take a little different take on it here tonight. Um, and I especially want to look at it from the perspective of Joseph. And in doing this, we'll get at some sense of why this was the right time. Because it certainly wouldn't have seemed like the right time if you're talking to the characters involved in this. So to start with, uh, you know, the, Mary's pregnant, and then Caesar comes up with this great plan of how to better tax people. And so now everyone's got to go to their hometown. Uh, from from uh, Nazareth down to Bethlehem would be about an 80-mile trip. And Mary is very late in her pregnancy. Uh, this just certainly doesn't feel like a convenient time to be pregnant and wanting to give birth. Why would God think this is the right time? So they make this, this, this truck down there, and they get there just in time to find out that there's no room in the end. There's no place to stay. And apparently, Mary is going into labor now, and they, so they've got to find some place. And so they choose this stable um, that's associated with this inn. Uh, I mean, enter into this with your imagination. If this inn is full, that means that the stable's going to be full. This is where people park their vehicles. Uh, in this time, their vehicles are going to be donkeys, and probably had some cows in there and some sheep in there, and it's going to be crowded, and it's going to be dirty, and it's going to be, as we heard in the children's story, very, very smelly. And there's going to be animal poo all over the place. It, it was the worst conditions you can imagine having a baby in. So here Joseph and Mary come in there, and they've got to, I guess, find a corner or something, get the animals out of the way so the animals are getting mad at them now, and get the straw and get whatever other stuff may be there to try to create a place, a semi-clean place, for her to give birth. And then realize that Joseph, I mean, this couldn't have been the more inconvenient time. Um, Joseph doesn't know anything about delivering a baby. Mary probably had seen it done. Uh, maybe she had assisted because in that culture, it was very common for all the women in the village to come around when someone's having a baby and, and to be part of that. But the guys were kept out of it. You didn't have any part of it. In fact, even in our own culture, it's only been the last four decades or so that guys have been invited into the room. They used to have to stay out there and bite their knuckles or whatever. Um, and instead, we get to go in there and bite our knuckles. It's, 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 a, it's a harrowing experience. But he, he wouldn't have known anything about this. In fact, being a good Jewish first century guy, he really wouldn't have known anything about this, all right? You can follow me here. See, he wouldn't have had a clue. Never been in this terrain before. Um, and, 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 you know, we talk about the miracle of birth and how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. And that wasn't my experience. Uh, I, and I don't know about the rest of you guys, but it was. So my firstborn was, was uh, at, the uh, day I was born, 1981, at Yale University Hospital. And uh, this is a teaching hospital, and it's a, they're really into the natural childbirth stuff, okay? They want to get away from all that clinical things. So uh, they wanted the, the, the father uh, or the partner or whoever to be very much a part of this whole thing. And so we had classes we took together, you know, and, and all that kind of thing. And, and, and very much a part of the birthing process and a coach, and they told us how to do all that, you know. Breathe, honey, breathe, honey, breathe, honey. Uh, whatever. And so... Um, and they also wanted to have as little medicine as possible, as little, little medical intervention as possible, as natural as possible, which lasted for about two minutes because when Shelly starts going into these hard contractions, he's like, okay, 
I want the epidural now. And they're like, oh, honey, sorry, you're already four centimeters dilated or whatever. It's too late for that, which doesn't make Shelly in a good mood at all. Uh, it puts me a little bit on edge. So we're going through this whole thing. And the, the, the midwife is like super enthusiastic cheerleader type. And she's always trying to get me to involve in how wonderful this is and whatever. So she's, at one point she says, oh, the baby's head is crowning. Would you like to see? So I'm like, I don't see any baby. I don't see anything resembling a head. I just go, well, that's the baby's head right there. It's like, I don't see anything. It's, it's quite a confusing situation, if you ask me. <laughs> and then I realized that it just struck me, there's a serious plumbing issue here. It's like, this was not made for this. This is, this is who thought of this design? Because it's, it's like driving a tractor trailer through an internet cable or something. It's just, I, I don't see how it's going to work. So the baby, Danae's head pops out finally. And they, they had warned me that there could be some slight indentation. But this was not a slight indentation. She was born with a cone head. She had a, it came out of the pointed forest. It was like, it, it, she was a cone head. And it's like, it's gotta be, that's gotta cause brain damage. It, it, it's, it's a, and I said, is this normal? And the, the, the midwife, of course, is going, oh, this is perfectly normal. But I thought she's lying. She just doesn't want to give me the bad news that my child now is going to have brain damage her whole life. Plus, she's purple and slimy. And a purple, slimy conehead. That's what she was. She looked like some kind of an alien or a lizard or something. It was, as, it, it was, it, yeah. and, and she was gasping. She was like opening her mouth, but nothing was coming out. Like, I'm, like, I'm, like she's choking to death. So I'm, and no wonder it's, it, too tight of a space. So I'm just like, honey, lighten up a little bit. You're causing our baby more brain damage by having, choking her. It was scary. And then these five guys, it's a teaching hospital, and right at the crucial moment, five guys walk into the room, and they're my age, and it's like my wife's in the most compromised position I can imagine, and now these five strangers are looking at her, and I don't like it. It was like a surrealistic experience. Like, this is, this, is this how it's supposed to go? And then the baby's finally born. And she's all, I almost want to say, honey, guess what? We, we gave birth to a, to a, to a cone-headed, brain-damaged, slimy, purple lizard girl. It, it, it was just, fortunately, they put a little cap on her head to cover that up. But it was so, it was really, a, I, so, and, and I was prepped for this, you know? Lady finally goes, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? I'm like, heck no! Especially then afterwards, oh, that mess that comes after that. As, and I am not, I could never be a doctor. Dude, I, you doctor, because I, I, it's like, pack it back in. And I can't, that, but that wasn't supposed to come out. It's like a, a mess. Okay, so that's me, and I had been educated on this. What would Joseph be like? I, I, I think he was out of his wits. I, I strongly suspect that Mary, being 13 or 14 years old, probably had to coach him through everything and calm him down. It's going to be all right. Yeah, this is how it's supposed to go. And he's like freaking out. I wouldn't doubt if when Jesus was born, he says, well, the, 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 the dream said it was to be the son of God, but frankly, it looks like a cone-headed brain damaged, slimy purple lizard of a God. Is this how it's supposed to be? The timing couldn't have been worse. Couldn't have been worse. And they didn't get easier for this couple either because in short order, they're going to have to flee up to Egypt because uh, become immigrants over in Egypt because Herod's trying to kill this kid. And so they live up there for a while. And, uh, and their whole life, they're going to have this stigma of, of uh, this baby born out of wedlock, which in first century Jewish culture was a stigma, a judgment that you never lived down. And this whole family's going to have this on them. Uh, what about this was, was the right timing? It was messy, like we just heard. It, it, was, it was the worst circumstance imaginable. But I think that's part of the point. Because it's telling us that 
the God who's revealed in Jesus isn't this nice and tidy and prissy, always doing clean way God. He's a God who is willing to come to the world and he doesn't come with the best of, of, of circumstances. He's not treated like a king. Kings are supposed to have royal treatment and nice beds and all. He comes and he gets the worst treatment. He gets the worst treatment. And that's kind of part of the point. This is a God who dives into our world. And he dives into it at its worst. And that's one of the reasons why this time, it was, this timing was the worst timing, which is why it was the right timing. Two other things that, that I think make this the, the, the right timing. Uh, I shared this yesterday, that... Uh, they had just, 27 years earlier, uh, put out this decree that they started a new civic religion in Rome. And in order to keep Rome unified, uh, they had this new religion that, that was centered on the worship of the emperor. And so in 27 BC, this guy named Octavius, he consolidates all the power of Rome under himself. So the Roman Republic now becomes the Roman Empire. Really, the, the, the emperor's Rome is what it means. And... Um, uh, and so they, to unify this empire, they give him the name Augustus. That's the guy we read about in Luke, Luke chapter 2. Um, Augustus means worthy of worship. And then they give him these titles, and they support this with all this propaganda all throughout Rome, that he is called the Lord, and he's called the Savior, and he's called the Son of God. And he, he, he was said to be the bearer of good news and, and the bringer of peace in this world. Those are the titles that are given to him. And the law is that if you apply those titles to anyone else, you're guilty of treason. So now the real Lord, the real Savior, the real Son of God, the real good news bearer, and the real bringer of peace comes into this world. And so his very being is treasonous, which means he's going to get himself killed. He is born a rival, or at least this is how it will be perceived by everybody, a rival to the authorities and the powers that be. The timing couldn't be worse. If Jesus had been born 27 years earlier, he wouldn't have had this problem. But now, at this time, it's certain he will be killed. That was God's right timing. Second thing is this, that the, the Jewish people had been under Roman domination for six decades, and, and they were brutal, and they were terrorists, and uh, it, it was, life for peasant Jews was very, very hard. They knew that the Old Testament promised a Messiah, and the more their suffering intensified, the more their longing for a Messiah intensified. And at the time, the exact time when Jesus is born, it is at a pinnacle. This messianic fever is at a pinnacle. Because people are thinking, it can't get any worse than this. Surely God's going to send a Messiah and save us. So people are looking for this Messiah, expecting the Messiah all over the place. In an unprecedented kind of way. At this unique period of history. Now, you would think that maybe that would work to Jesus' advantage, right? Because people would be more receptive to accepting him as a Messiah. And they did at first. But see, here's the thing. They assumed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would beat up all of their enemies, slaughter the Romans, and liberate Israel to once again be a sovereign, God-glorifying state. That was everyone's assumption. Jesus comes into this world, and he's doing these miracles, and he's speaking with his authority, and he's giving people a lot of reasons to think that he's a genuine Messiah. But there's some things about him that just don't quite fit. Like, for example, he says we're supposed to love our enemies and turn the other cheek and, and, and pray for those who despitefully use us and, and, and do good to those who persecute us. And his audience is going to be thinking Romans. Is he saying that we're supposed to love those Romans? The ones that he's supposed to lead us in killing. It doesn't fit. It doesn't compute. And he does crazy things. Like, he, 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 Roman centurion, the leader of a big platoon, uh, his daughter is, is, is suffering, and Jesus heals his daughter. 
Another time he heals the centurion's servant. What kind of Messiah is this? You're supposed to hate those military leaders. You're supposed to slaughter those military leaders, not use your power to benefit those military leaders. So Jesus is already not quite fitting the bill here. Something's wrong. But he's still got quite a following. Um, when he rides into Jerusalem just before he cleanses the temple, people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, hail, because they think he's riding into Jerusalem to slaughter the Romans. But then he gets arrested. And when he gets arrested, their hope is not only disappointed, it turns to disdain. And that's why many of the crowd that was saying Hosanna in the highest on, on, on the, as he rode into town on Palm Sunday are, are, are saying crucify him, crucify him a week later. Their disappointment turned to disdain. And so here is one period where both the Jews and the Romans have a reason why they want Jesus crucified. And it wouldn't have been that way if Jesus had born even just a couple decades earlier. But at this unique period of history, this was the right time. It's the right time for God to come into this world if, if God's goal is to, right from the start, be considered an outsider and there's no room in the inn. That's the right time. It's the right time. If your plan was to be born not in a palace, but in a, in a smelly, dirty barn, it's, it's the right time if, if God's plan was to become this immigrant on the run from the law which is what they were. It's the right time if your plan was to have this, this, this shadow over your head your whole life because of you were born out of wedlock. This is the perfect time to do that. It's the right time if, if, if you've come to disappoint your people uh, by not filling in their violent expectations of you. And it's the right time if you've come to have them turn against you because you're not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. It's just the right time. If, 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 if what you're looking for, God, is to be born and your very, your very, being, your very being is treasonous, and certain that you will die. This is the right time to do that. It's the right time if your plan is to get captured and beaten and mocked and scourged and executed on a cross. It's the right time, God, if you want to be identifying with our mess and our stress and our sin and our curse. This is the right time. And it was the right time because by diving into the world at its worst, by diving into what the worst the world has to offer, by diving even into our sin, God puts on display the beauty of who God actually is. Uh, by going to that extreme and paying that price, God puts on display the, the, the limitless nature, the unconditional nature, the perfection of the love that God is and the love that God has for us. Had he come under more ideal circumstances, his love wouldn't have been so clearly displayed. We might even think he came to reward us because we're such good people. But in this circumstance, he comes in at the worst. And the worst, then, is what allows him to put on display the beauty of his character. He's a God who, whose love isn't based on the condition that you're in, whether it's good or it's bad. His love is just there. And see, the way it applies to us, folks, is that, that we've got to know that, that when, when, when the Bible says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, it means he's Emmanuel, God with us. And there's no condition clause on that, you might have noticed. It doesn't say he's God with us when you're a good boy, but not when you're a bad boy. No, it's about God, not us. God is with us. It's about God, not us. Uh, Jesus says that this is the God who, who loves like the, the, like the rain falls and like the sun shines on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked. But see, the sun, the sun warms up the wicked as much as it warms up the righteous, and the rain gets the, 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 the wicked as wet as it does the, the, the righteous. Uh, it's, it's an indiscriminate kind of love that Jesus says that's who God is. We put this, this kind of, we project our little merit system onto God, right? Uh, we think his love goes up and down based on our merits and how worthy we are and whatever. And then we rank people according to their sin, whatever like that. But see, that, that just reduces Jesus to be some kind of a giant Santa Claus, right? I, better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming to town and he's ticked off. 
That's us projecting it onto God. That's not God. God doesn't have that evaluating system whatsoever. It doesn't go up and down based on your behavior, your circumstances, your well-being. He's God with us. In the good times, rejoicing with us. In the bad times, grieving with us and working to bring transformation to us. And so what you need to know is that, that he's God with you when you're going through those dark days of that divorce. He's, he's with you as much there as he is when you're happily married ever after. Uh, his love doesn't vary on that. Uh, he, he's with you when you're in the, the throes of doubt and confusion, as much as when you're having a strong faith and everything's going great. God's with you if you're the mother with two kids living out of a car and you're almost out of gas money. He's still God with you. He's God with you when you're suffering the unimaginable grief of having lost a child or some other loved one. He's God with you even when you've been betrayed by your best friend. He's God with you when you've just heard that your cancer has returned with a vengeance. He's God with you when your, your health is failing and your wealth is failing and maybe your mind is failing. He's God with you in the darkest hour and the deepest most confusing hour, in the most painful hour, in the most ho seemingly hopeless hour, even in the God-forsaken hour, you've got to know that God is with you. He's always Emmanuel. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's no condition clauses on this whatsoever. And even if you're at fault, you, you made a mess of your life, that doesn't affect God's love for you or God's presence in your life. Not one bit. This is the God who's not afraid of sin. He's not, he's not a prissy God who's like, oh, I can't. No, the cross reveals that Jesus, he dives into sin. He reveals his holiness, his distinctness, his uniqueness. That's what the word holy means. He reveals that by becoming our sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He becomes our sin. This is an upside down, beautiful, radiant, glorious God. Unlike any other kind of God that we'd ever think of on our own or ever expect. No, this is a God who does all of our expectations, blows all of our expectations sky high. He comes to us at our worst to transform us into what he knows can be our best. He's doing it with us individually, and he's doing it, uh, doing it with us in the world. So even if it was your affair or your neglect, or maybe your cruelty or your harsh words, whatever, that ended your marriage, God is still with you. And even if you've fallen off the wagon one more time and you're back to drinking or back to snorting or back to watching porn or whatever it is that has you in bondage, God is with you. God is still with you. And, and, and he's with you to free you from that if you'll just let him. God's with you, whatever it is, he may have hurt all the loved ones in your life and made a total mess of your life. It's a train wreck. But God is with you. God is with you. And what it means, folks, is that this God, when he comes at the right time, it's the worst time. And that's what it makes it the right time. And so we never have to hide. We, we so often do this. Uh, you know, there's stuff in our life. Sometimes people are so little introspective that they forget about all the stuff that they're that is there, and they think they're righteous. Uh, but I guarantee you, you're not. not. Not as righteous as you think. We, we grossly overestimate ourselves. But it's, see, if, if we don't acknowledge stuff, we never get healed from stuff. Amen. Wounds and sin and faults that are concealed are wounds and sin and faults that can't be healed. Uh, it is to our benefit to offer up to God regularly the worst of ourselves. We always like to put our best foot forward and just pretend like that old thing isn't there. And we even hide it from our own consciousness. But it's all about standing naked before God and, and trusting. The reason we hide is because there's shame. And we have the shame because we fear that God's going to be this ogre. That's why I haven't hid, hid in the garden. God's going to be a meanie. No, no, you've got to trust the character that's revealed in this story. The God of the mess who specializes in the mess. Because that's how he beautifies the mess. Let God into your mess. 
Hey, it's a big mess that's very public. Maybe it's a real private mess that no one knows about but you, but let him in on that. Offer it up. Offer it up just as you are. Because see, it's as we're loved, as we are, warts and all, faults and shortcomings and jaded history and wounded memories and all that. As, as, as that. as we let that love shine on us as we are, that is what begins to transform us into who God knows we can become. Let God in on your worst and he begins to transform you into your best, uh, which will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful God we serve. Amen. What a beautiful God is revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, if you understand the gospel, you, you, you still may not believe it, but, but you at least would wish it was true. If, 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 if you're mad at God, or you're Christianity because you think it's ugly or whatever, you're not understanding the good news. It's good news. And atheists should wish it was true. If they're, if they're rejecting the true God, they would at least say, gosh, doggone, I was hoping that was true. But I'm here to tell you tonight, it is true. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It is true.